Hi, everyone. It's Derek Chalet, and I'm really excited for this special episode of Post-Pandemic Order, featuring a recent conversation I had with former 2020 Democratic presidential candidate and mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. We discussed the unrest roiling the United States, the imperative of social justice, the threat from China, America's role in the world, and what books he's reading to help understand this moment and the way ahead. This interview is part of GMF's Brussels Forum 2020, which is a month-long series of events featuring leading policymakers and thinkers to discuss the most important issues. For more about the conference, check out brusselsforum.org. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mayor Pete. The military is being, once again, as has been true throughout this presidency, but now in a way that's no longer just symbolic, uh, manipulated. Right? It's one thing to use the military as a prop in a way that's distasteful or embarrassing. It's another to literally use the military in an unconstitutional fashion. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Pete Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who earlier this year was the second youngest presidential candidate in modern American history. Over the course of his nearly 15-month presidential campaign, Mayor Buttigieg skyrocketed to the top tier of a very crowded Democratic field. Uh, He had strong showings in the early contests in Iowa and New Hampshire, winning and getting second, respectively. Uh, And his campaign was widely admired for its ideas, its message, its organization, and its energy. Mayor Buttigieg brings unique perspective on so many of the issues that are urgent today. Having served for eight years as the mayor of South Bend, he's been focused on the everyday challenges people face and how to help make their lives better. And as a proud veteran of the United States Navy, where he served in Afghanistan, he also brings personal experience with the exercise of American power in the world. So on these issues and much more, he's a leading voice in the United States today, and I hope and expect for many years to come. And currently, he's developing and supporting the next generation of leaders with his new organization, Win the Era. So, Mr. Mayor, we are really glad to have you here this morning, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'd like to start by asking you to reflect on the underlying conditions that has led to what I believe is one of the most perilous moments we've faced in American history, what's going on today in the United States. And and I'd be really curious to hear from you of what you think has led to this moment uh, and and in shaping our response to this pandemic and and unrest. You spent eight years as a mayor of an industrial Midwest city. Uh, You spent well over a year traveling this country to every corner and meeting all sorts of people and taking the pulse of what's going on. So how do you explain this? How did we get here? Well, uh, first of all, thank you, Derek, for, for guiding our conversation. And, and I want to thank the German Marshall Fund for the opportunity to, uh, to be with you. And uh, as you say, this is coming at an exceptionally difficult moment in the life of the United States. And I think ultimately what we're facing here is the most uh, disruptive and harmful force throughout American history. Uh, once again, uh, being confronted and being confronted in a new way. 
You know, there have been a, a lot of efforts to, I think, grasp for the right analogy. Is this 1968? Is this uh, uh, the early 30s? Is, is this in some ways like the 1850s in the run-up to the Civil War? Uh, and I don't think there is really any appropriate historical parallel that, that can instruct us, uh, at least not in a, in a tidy way. We are where we are because America, to this day, has failed to come to terms with its greatest demon which is systemic racism. And if you just think about it, this is always the force uh, and, and white supremacy, it's, its related cousin. The force that has come nearest to fully wrecking the American project. At the time of the founding, it was the force that made it most difficult to obtain consensus and led to uh, some contortions in terms of the compromises that were required to set up the American government that are haunting us now in things like the uh, uh, counter-majoritarian structure of the United States Senate. Uh, it almost sank the United States, of course, in the Civil War, the, the gravest threat to, to the integrity of the country in our history. And I think, once again, we're at a moment where we will either make major progress in confronting systemic racism in my lifetime, or it will fully destroy the American project in my lifetime. Uh, th that's what's in front of us. And so when folks ask what's different this time, I think first of all, it's just the cumulative effect of not only police violence and mistreatment of black Americans in particular and Americans of color in general in encounters with the criminal legal system, but it goes so much deeper than that. COVID-19 of course has both exposed and exploited the many ways in which uh, there is a physical, measurable health impact to racism uh, that is always to the detriment of Americans of color. The economic disempowerment of Black Americans in particular cannot be separated, uh, nor can educational uh, inequities, housing inequities, uh, or of course the political inequities that we've seen, uh, maybe not codified as they were in the days of Jim Crow but very much on display in the patterns of voter suppression that have been taking place in recent years. And by the way, not only, though, though largely, in the American South. I think the biggest thing that will have to change if we're actually going to get out of this is actually uh, a change among white Americans. Uh, there has, part, part of white supremacy is a, a sort of a fiction or a perception or a sense that race is an issue that applies to people of color. In other words, because whiteness is treated as the default or the norm, uh, white people generally don't have to think of themselves as having a race. Even though whiteness defines and affects the experience of being a white American uh, just in just as many ways, though with a totally different effect, uh, as being black or a person of color affects the lives of others. And so right now, I think there's a very uh, challenging balance for people of good intent in the United States, recognizing that black voices are and ought to be leading uh, this, uh, this protest and, and, and this movement in this moment in so many ways, and yet recognizing that uh, they cannot be asked to lead or bear this burden alone, when what really has to change the most, not only politically, but really socially, is uh, what is going on uh, in the hearts, minds, and, and, and practices of white people and, and uh, white-oriented structures in our country. All of this is coming to a head in a way that, that really 
uh, almost defies description. Uh, the metaphor of original sin is appropriate, but already feels a little bit shopworn and, and maybe a little dangerous too, because it makes it feel like the sin is from a distant past. Uh, uh, there, there are other ways that it's been described, but we, we are really in a new place. And of course, we're in a new place in terms of uh, not only the lack of leadership competent to unite Americans at a time like this, but actually it's very opposite. opposite. A, a president who does not even attempt, as General Mattis pointed out last night, uh, does not even pretend to attempt to unify Americans. That is incredibly dangerous, and yet is also, I think, beginning to lead to a reaction in American civil society, even in traditionally conservative corners. If you think about uh, the extraordinary nature of the general's rebuke, if you think about the fact that uh, the church, uh, not just the Episcopal church that I belong to, but the Catholic, uh, the Catholic bishop uh, of Washington were very vocal in the way that, that uh, religion was being in instrumentalized in a divisive way by this president, that uh, what remain of the antibodies uh, in, in American life to the kind of divisiveness the president is offering seem to be activated. Uh, but that's the situation that we're in, and it's painful. And it, it makes it that much harder for us to, uh, I think, explain ourselves on the world stage, which is one reason why I think this conversation is important and I've been looking forward to it. Absolutely. And we definitely want to get into America on the world stage. But before I do, uh, during your campaign, you talked about the importance of trying to build a new kind of politics and to move beyond a traditional uh, dividing lines between right and left, conservative and liberal. And you've, you've spoken quite eloquently just this morning now about the importance of transformational change. Uh, so I'd like to push you a little further. What, what sort of transformational change do you think is necessary? And, and how would you do it? I mean, we're so polarized. Washington has uh, been so dysfunctional uh, over the last, not just last three years, but arguably the last decade. Uh, how do you get it done? Um, uh, when you have an opposition uh, that seems pretty unwilling to talk about some of the change that you've suggested? Well, the reality is that it's part of why we need to change and improve the terms of our democracy itself. Democracy reform in the United States is one of those topics that has always been seen as important and rarely seen as urgent. And so it always, at the end of the day, takes a bit of a backseat to uh, a sexier or seemingly more critical uh, uh, issue. And yet, uh, we look at the fact that, uh, uh, the, the simple fact, first of all, that, that this president uh, was not the, the preferred choice of the majority of voters in the last election. Uh, you look at the fact that uh, money has come to play the role that it does in politics. Uh, you look at the persistence of often racially motivated voter suppression. And just the very terms of, of, of how we, it's the issue of how we deal with all our issues. And I will say that I staked out a, a, a very forward-leaning position on this during the campaign, even uh, talking about how we might want to reform, might need to reform uh, the structure of the Supreme Court so that it doesn't become another political battlefield. And I found audiences were ready to hear it. Um, you know, uh, abolishing the Electoral College is not the easiest sell in a place like New Hampshire. Um, uh, talking about Supreme Court reform gets people a little nervous on all sides of the aisle. But uh, we've come to a point where I think there's a widespread recognition that if we want to call ourselves a democracy, uh, if we want to uh, live into America's uh, reputation at our best moments as uh, a country that is speaking for democracy on the world stage, we've got to get our house in order. And so I think that 
underlies all of the other concrete reforms that need to happen. Uh, the kinds of things we articulated in uh, uh, what my campaign called the Frederick Douglass Plan on Systemic Racism, acknowledging that economic empowerment, criminal legal system reform, health, education, housing, and democracy, as I was just saying, are all interconnected and each of them needs major steps in order to really uh, be the kind of country that we need to be. Uh, but any policy change we seek to make, uh, any policy equipment we're going to need in order to confront issues like climate change, begin with simply making sure that we have a more responsive system to demands that are widely already widely understood among people, regardless of how they've been voting in the last few elections. Do you think, though, there's uh, the opposition is ready for this kind of dialogue? I mean, do you think, I guess, what, from your campaign and the experience you've had over the last 15 months or from your mm -hmm. efforts in trying to bring change to South Bend, uh, what, what gives you hope for, for that this is possible? You know, part of my kind of specialty in the campaign was, was reaching out in, in some of the counties, especially in Iowa, that had famously voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. And what I found there was that appealing to people was not necessarily a matter of slicing and dicing the ideological weighted average and hitting, uh, hitting the midpoint. It was a matter of speaking to people with a level of regard that, that showed an understanding that politics is fundamentally about every, everyday life. The biggest themes that we are addressing, from freedom to security, from systemic racism to economic justice to healthcare, they, they ultimately matter because they cash out in somebody's everyday life. And so often, uh, people would come up to me at my events, letting me know that, uh, uh, that they had uh, been lifelong Republicans, or even that they had voted for this president last time. Uh, and in, in their mind or in their view, it was less about, often it was less about an affinity for what he had to say and more about a desire to kind of burn the house down. And my message was, all right, the house is on fire. Now what are we going to do next? And there was a way to reach people that, again, did not ever involve watering down uh, my values or policies. But really, it was just about making sure that we found the humanity in one another. I remember one moment when I was in a rural area of Iowa, and uh, I always uh, thought it was important to have a, a Q&A and not just give a stump speech, no matter how big the crowd. Um, called on a guy, and it was in the split second after I called on, on him and before he started speaking that I made out the lettering on his baseball cap that said Trump. And I thought, well, all right, here we go. He had a question about Social Security, and he was uh, curious, uh, open-mindedly curious and worried uh, about uh, whether the economy was really going to, to work for his community. And uh, later on, I learned that a supporter of ours had, had befriended him. I still don't know if I won him over how he voted, but there were stories like that throughout the campaign. Uh, whenever I spoke about trying to unite what I called future former Republicans, to progressives and independents, there were always people nodding in the crowd. And what that told me is this isn't just about ideology for people. Again, it's not that I tricked anybody into thinking I was any less progressive than I am, um, but it was about reaching people in a way that, that, that showed regard for where they are and took politics back to the realm of everyday life, which is ultimately what, what it's about, even with the most high-minded themes that we'd like to discuss. I'd like to shift now to uh, America's role in the world. And, and for the next few weeks at this Brussels Forum, we'll be hearing from European friends about what impact this crisis, both twin crisis, the corona crisis, as well as the domestic unrest and the, and the response to it uh, is bringing, is damaging America's role in the world or impacting it. I'm curious to hear from you, 
your take on on how you see this going and, and how we should be thinking about foreign policy right now. I mean, th- we are overwhelmed uh, here at home uh, with uh, lots to be worried about. And it's, it's forced certainly in our media environment what's happening in the world being pushed further away. So how do you, how do you think we should be thinking about foreign policy? And, uh, and also what message do you, are you worried that we're sending to the world right now? Well, first of all, of course, it is uh, troubling that uh, a country whose leadership I think is needed, especially to vindicate democracy and human rights at a moment when they're in retreat, uh, everywhere from Hong Kong to, to uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, we're basically unable to do that because our own president echoes the the, the vocabulary of dictators in, in describing the press as the enemy of the people. And, and that was before the, the events of the last 72 hours, which, uh, of course, uh, less than democratic uh, voices around the world have wasted no time in pointing to and capitalizing on. Uh, what I often said in the campaign was that the world needs America right now, but it can't be just any America. And I think that continues to be true. America at our best still uh, represents a powerful force for uh, these values. And and, and the power of it was always that these were not strictly or uniquely American values, that that our values as a country aligned when when we were at our best uh, with values that that were shared even by people living under regimes that were hostile to, to the United States. And so the question has become, can we recover that? And the job of the next president, and I'm, uh, I'm working very hard to make sure that's President Biden, uh, will be to quickly act to restore U.S. credibility. If there's hope, I think it's in the scope of the challenges that the world faces, which cannot be faced alone uh, by any country. Uh, the U.S., uh, take climate. Uh, it just can't be addressed without the U.S., because, uh, if only because we're a big emitter but I think for other reasons too. It also can't be addressed by the U.S. alone because we represent less than 15% of the emissions. You could say the same about uh, the pandemic and about global public health. You could say the same about really any number of 21st century challenges from cybersecurity uh, to to terrorism. And so the the challenges remain the kind of challenges that only work if countries are working together and and, uh, where the U.S. can and should play a key leadership role. Uh, it also, of course, means that uh, uh, the U.S. should be participating in the strengthening and, if necessary, the reform of international institutions that were largely built on terms that were set by the U.S., but that are due for reform. Uh, and that's why it's it's so unfortunate to see, for example, the president decide to withdraw from the WHO instead of be in that forum uh, uh, calling for whatever uh, changes there. There may be some legitimate changes that, that need to be made. The U.S. should be leading the way, not taking our ball and going home. Uh, so uh, I believe that the United States can recover from this moment, but the window is vanishing, uh, and uh, and the next president will have a lot of work to do. Well, one of those challenges I'd like to ask you about uh, is something you've recently written about in the Washington Post, and that's China. There's no question that China and both its direction and and the U.S. response to it is going to be a dominant foreign policy issue in the campaign and be a top-tier issue for the next president. Uh, in this Washington Post piece, you wrote that China is banking on Trump uh, winning and, and having another four years of him in office. So first, I'd like to hear from you about how you see the China threat and what we should be doing about it. And secondly, to talk more about why you're so worried uh, about Trump's re-election from the perspective of how you see China. 
Yeah, so I think the China challenge uh, represents uh, one of the, the biggest issues that the next president will have to deal with and America has to deal with right now. And uh, while I, I don't believe that we are inevitably destined for a Cold War type relationship, uh, I do believe that the, the economic, political, and ideological uh, contest uh, is uh, becoming one that we, whose dimensions we can't ignore. I also believe that uh, uh, nothing would be more beneficial to China's position in that strategic rivalry than the re-election of Donald Trump. First of all, it keeps the United States polarized, uh, chaotic, uh, divided, and weakened. Secondly, it makes it very difficult to respond to the human rights violations, whether we're talking about Xinjiang province or whether we're talking about the repression of, uh, of democratic uh, speakers and protesters in Hong Kong. Uh, partly because we don't have the credibility to do it uh, when our president is acting the way that he does, but also because this president's shown no enthusiasm for all of his uh, tough on China uh, rhetoric. The area where it would be perhaps most beneficial to be tough on uh, on the CCP and on Beijing, uh, which is with respect to what most of the world regards as unacceptable behavior uh, toward uh, its own citizens, is an area where this president has been. Uh, content to remain silent and has made it pretty clear that he's doing so uh, in the service of trade goals. Uh, there are lots of questions of whether the president's trade strategy uh, will uh, yield uh, any real stability uh, and long-term benefit. Uh, and of course, so much depends on strategic alliances, transatlantic relationships to begin with, but not only transatlantic relationships, which the president has done everything in his power to set fire to. Uh, you look at Australia, which is facing its own China challenge in a heightened way and uh, ordinarily would be able to turn to the United States uh, in a way that I, I think is right now it is uh, attenuated at best. So all of this puts us on the back foot with respect to a China challenge that I actually think, and, and maybe a little differently than some in my party, really does represent a major issue, whether we're talking about uh, some of the technological vulnerabilities that are emerging. Uh, whether we're talking about the, their domestic model that uh, involves the use of, of technology really for the perfection of dictatorship, uh, or whether we're talking about uh, activities in, uh, in, in the region. Um, there, there's no question that, uh, that this challenge is only going to loom larger over time. Uh, and yet here too, we know that, that in the context of things like combating climate change, we will have to come to terms with China in order for the world to advance. This is a, a, an incredibly complex and very nuanced diplomatic challenge. Needless to say, complex and nuanced diplomatic challenges are not the strong suit of this president. Uh, but worse than that, uh, China, once again, uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, state voices are wasting no time in invoking the imagery of what's gone on in the United States for the last week uh, to make it uh, harder than ever for any American voice, even outside of the White House, uh, to point to the disturbing nature of how China has uh, really detonated the, the one country, uh, two systems doctrine with its recent actions in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Mayor, I just got a, a couple more questions and then we're going to open it up to the audience because we've already got a lot of questions from the audience uh, coming in and I encourage folks to, to ask more. I'm curious about your take on, and I don't want to say you have to speak for, for a younger generation, but, but nevertheless, your campaign represented a, a, a new generation and how you see, if at all, differences in how the, how 
the rising generation looks at America's role in the world and American foreign policy. And, and related to that, uh, how do we, how do, how should we be talking about it? I, I think one of the things we've seen over the last, certainly during the Trump years, but I would argue it goes back even to when President Obama was in office, a divide between the, the so-called foreign policy establishment and how the debates f- unfold in places like Washington and at think tanks and inside the halls of government and Congress, and and how folks in South Bend, Indiana, or other parts of the United States, they don't, don't think about America's role in the world day to day. And, and there's, a, I think, an increasing distance uh, that we've seen. And I'd be curious, the lessons that you've learned, having someone with deep foreign policy experience, but also, obviously, you know, a son of the Midwest and who's, who's worked every day to try try to make people's lives better uh, in South Bend. How do you, how did you try to get at this problem? So there's both the generational aspect of it as well as a geographic aspect of it. Yeah. Well, I always thought about what it would take to have a foreign policy for South Bend uh, and for the South Bends of the world. Uh, Because of course, this really is immediate and close to home in so many ways. Uh, If there's an armed conflict, people from my part of the country are more likely to be called up to serve it. If uh, there is a trade war, uh, the manufacturing uh, facilities uh, one or two miles from from where I'm sitting and the farms four or five miles from where I'm sitting uh, are going to feel the pain. Uh, All of these things are very directly consequential for American life. It comes back to that broader account of politics I was offering that it's really about the everyday. Uh, But of course, it takes a little bit of work to articulate that when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, And if, if we don't talk about it in those terms, um, this is how we make sure that, that, that you prosper economically. This is how we make sure that, that uh, uh, we are not sucked into a conflict that will affect us. Then it, it can only be expressed in emotional terms, uh, like the, the Trump narrative of America being taken, somehow taken advantage of and, and the need to, you know, as he puts it, America first, which of course amounts to America alone. But yeah, most people around here aren't worried about uh, you know, whether at a, uh, forgive me, but a fancy diplomatic conference, right? <laughs> uh, American leaders are, uh, are being treated with higher or lower regard. They're, they're worried about what's going to happen in the, uh, in the neighborhood. And yet what's going to happen in the neighborhood is very much impacted by this. And, and, and I think the job of political leadership in particular is to express and articulate that. My own state, just to take one example, Indiana, uh, has a wonderful bipartisan tradition through figures uh, like Lee Hamilton, uh, Democrat in the House, and uh, Richard Luger, Republican in the Senate, uh, of doing just that, of being foreign policy leaders in a way that, that really uh, harmonized with, not uh, was in conflict with their, their presence as very rooted uh, Midwestern figures. Now, when it comes to the generational dimension, I think the biggest thing to remember is that if, if your uh, Political consciousness started uh, any time after 9-11, so let's say from the Iraq War onward, then in the very same way that an older generation's understanding of America's role in the world was uh, likely to be fashioned in a, a, an atmosphere of moral uh, certitude, uh, at least in terms of the rhetoric, um, now more than ever, uh, your understanding of America's role in the world is one of deep moral ambivalence. Again, I don't want to wave away all of the moral complexity of America's conduct of Cold War policy, but the basic self-image and the basic narrative, which was bipartisan, if not universal, from World War II through most of the Cold War, tended to associate America and our influence uh, with ideas of of democracy and the expansion of human rights. And however imperfectly we did it, that was the general sense of what it meant for America to be in the world. 
for many, many Americans. I'm not sure we can count on that anymore to be true for anyone who came of age at that moment or younger, which basically means uh, anyone younger than me. I was a sophomore in college when 9-11 happened. And 9-11 might have been the last world event that, that uh, in a way, actually reinforced that sense. And of course, President Bush tried to grab hold of that with a kind of good versus evil uh, rhetoric that animated his, uh, uh, his language. And yet, uh, not much uh, longer after the invasion of Iraq, uh, there was uh, uh, there was more than ever a, a sense, I think, of, of ambivalence about what we were doing and why. So we have a generation now that is mistrustful of what it means for America to participate in the world at all, but also a generation that doesn't need anybody to educate them on why big, complex, or abstract global issues are personal to them, right? You don't have to tell a teenager right now that climate change is a life and death issue. Uh, they feel it. They are reminding uh, of the American political establishment of it. Uh, and uh, I, I think that that's another source of hope. It's not for nothing that, uh, you know, globally, the, the, one of the most prominent uh, climate activists, maybe the most, right? Uh, I'm not sure even today she is yet old enough to vote if she were an American citizen, uh, maybe just, just barely. Um, and so I think that in that sense, there, there's some hope that, that, that the, the demystification of why these things matter. That work doesn't have to be done. What has to be done is, is bring it into a common agenda that's actually getting traction in the political space. Uh, well said. Um, I'd like to turn to the questions from the audience. Uh, we've got a bunch already in, and I'd like to start with one that comes from a journalist in Poland uh, who asked you, Mayor, that as a former member of the United States military, what would you do if you were still in uniform and you were deployed to the streets of Washington or another city? Uh, what do you think about how the military has been handling the situation? How do you think of it? Uh, and what do you think U.S. allies are taking from this? Yeah, I've been uh, in touch with friends who, who I served with who are horrified about what we're seeing. And again, I think, uh, you know, the, the extraordinary rebuke from General Mattis reflects uh, something that is really true, not just at the leadership level, but throughout the American military. You got to understand how high regard someone like him is is held uh, in in the rank and file. I remember a story. I never uh, served uh, under his uh, command or in the same theater even, uh, uh, and and yet just from people I was serving with stories about um, how he had motivated Marines and, and troops uh, in Iraq and elsewhere would go around to where I, I felt like I, I I knew a lot about him. Um, and so his anguish that, that has clearly propelled him to do something that, that uh, really goes in many ways against every norm that, that he's represented and upheld, upheld shows you, I think, the, the anguish that so many people who uh, swore to uphold the Constitution and serve this country are feeling. Uh, I would, uh, I think, weigh whether to resign my commission if I were serving and was ordered to, to do anything you know, remotely connected to uh, what, uh, what is being talked about or, or, or seen in, in D.C. And, and I think there's a question of how the military is being, once again, as has been true throughout this presidency, but now in a way that's no longer just symbolic, uh, manipulated. Right? It's one thing to use the military as a prop in a way that's distasteful or embarrassing. It's another to literally use the military in an unconstitutional fashion to, in, in the case of Lafayette Square, effectively trample the very First Amendment rights. That, remember, when you take that oath, 
you take the oath to the Constitution, the language of all of the service member oaths, enlisted and, and officer, are all about your loyalty to the Constitution, not to the president, not to the commander, um, but to the Constitution. And that is why this is such a painful moment for those in uniform, uh, as it is a painful moment in the country. I imagine it would be difficult. I'm, I'm thinking uh, Poland was one of the uh, uh, countries whose uh, soldiers I've interacted with often when I was uh, deployed overseas. It would be a tough time to look uh, our allied uh, soldiers in the eye right now, um, knowing that uh, our coalitions are built, in my view, not only on shared security interests, but in many ways around shared values. Uh, I suppose that where I can draw some hope is the fact that uh, while the president clearly is not leading in the right direction, there are these responses coming from uh, within uh, our country, coming from citizens, uh, coming from institutions uh, that are ready to insist that what he's doing is, is anathema to the, the very constitutional values that motivate people to serve in the first place. I don't know of one person that I served with who got into the military for the purpose of being turned against fellow Americans speaking up for equality in this country. Yeah. I, I'd like to build on this, this theme of service with another question uh, that's come in uh, about national service and getting your thoughts on the role that national service uh, and particularly new programs for national service should play in recovering from both the the, pand the COVID pandemic as well as the economic uh, crises that this country is facing. So I'm a big believer in the potential of national service, which which I would define as voluntary, uh, but as close as possible to universal uh, civilian service. The military is not for everybody. But one of the things I, I, I uh, took from military service was a sense of being side by side with people radically different from me and coming to learn to trust my life to people who had different uh, regional and racial backgrounds, uh, different politics, different beliefs from different generations. And that is obviously something we need a lot more of in, in a polarized and divided country right now. And so I think we should try to rec recreate that same effect in uh, expanded national uh, civilian service too. It meets the moment of the COVID pandemic in a very important and compelling way, which is that we're just plain going to need a lot of people to do this work. Look, uh, think about contact tracing. Uh, the best estimates suggest between 100,000 and 200,000 people are needed to effectively undertake a contact tracing program uh, that will be part of what it means to, to responsibly step into a, a, a sort of new normal. Um, and that's before we even get to the vaccine. I'm concerned that there's still an unspoken or unconsidered presumption that the moment the vaccine is invented is the moment that the problem of COVID-19 is solved. In reality, the effort to distribute that vaccine, to make it available to everybody, and in a mistrustful society, for everybody to decide to take it, you know, I can't remember the latest survey numbers, but it is a long way from 100% of Americans. Even if a working vaccine were announced and, and there were a way to get it that didn't cost them anything, we'd go get it. Yeah. And so there, there's a lot of work that we have to do in terms of trust, but also a lot of work that we have to do just in, in terms of logistics to make it available. All of which points to the value 
of expanded service, which I think is, is even independent of the things that people can work on, for the reasons I just mentioned, could be really good for our country. Mm-hmm. It's worth mentioning that actually the the equipment, so to speak, the, the, the mechanisms for dramatically expanded national service already exist. Every state has a service commission. Uh, the uh, CNCS is the kind of federal body that, that uh, manages funding uh, for efforts like AmeriCorps and, and, and VISTA, which are uh, very successful uh, service-oriented programs here in the U.S. Uh, all, all it would take would be a bigger appropriation, more money, which could be part of the next uh, Pandemic Relief Act in the U.S. Senate uh, and House. Um, uh, that's all it would take. Uh, and uh, many legislators are, are working on it right now, and, and uh, I hope that this gets traction because I think it could address not only the short-term crisis, but some of our long-term needs as a country. And the goal, again, would not be to impose it on anybody, but to reach the point as a society where it's such a norm that whether you're applying for your first job or whether you're applying to university, you can expect that the first question you'll get, uh, whether it's on your application or by way of small talk at, at, a, at an orientation event, is, uh, you know, where'd you serve? What'd you learn and what was it like? Well, on the question of, of contact tracing, which you mentioned is, is a potential avenue for, for service, we have a question that's come in from Twitter about uh, the use of technology in whether it's artificial intelligence or, or in responding to COVID, how we use to track and trace uh, COVID outbreaks and concerns that that raises about civil liberties. Civil and, and how we try to balance what could be a great benefit of technology in terms, in terms of trying to contain COVID with civil liberties, particularly civil liberties of minorities. How, how, how do you think about that balance? I think it's a, it's a real challenge. And it's one of the reasons, again, why I think uh, the issue of trust, societal trust, is, is going to be a, a very important factor in whether we can succeed. Uh, different countries have adopted different models. Uh, I think we, in many respects, from a social perspective can find uh, maybe more alignment for U.S. purposes in European models than uh, Asian models, even though both have developed uh, uh, pretty effective, uh, in some cases, pretty effective strategies for technology and contact tracing. There is a lot of good reason to be anxious about uh, handing data to any government at the very moment when our current government is showing authoritarian tendencies. At the same time, there's a quirk in, in American psychology around this and that we have freely handed over our data in really intimate, traceable, and, and, and uh, sometimes vulnerable ways to unaccountable corporations that don't even have the democratic safeguards that, that uh, our government does. I think the real question uh, we need to resolve as a country is what we think our relationship to our data even is, uh, because I don't think we've done that, that, that work. Uh, and without it, I think we're going to continue to have a little bit of trouble with coherence as we try to hit the, the right strategy on something specific and concrete, like what an American, uh, widely accepted American version of contact tracing app would actually look like. Mayor, we are just about out of uh, time, and I've got a couple more questions I'd like to get through. Uh, one that comes in uh, from one of uh, our listeners who's asked you very simply, how can the U.S. best repair its image on the world stage in a post-Trump administration? Well, I think it's going to be the work of more than one presidency because credibility takes time. But I think the best thing we can do is authentically lead in ways that make the world a better place and get to work quickly on doing that. And uh, again, the I can't exactly call it good news, but but the, the opportunity 
uh, is that there are plenty of problems that require that. For us to authentically lead on public health, for us to authentically lead on climate, uh, presents an opportunity for America to put our best face forward, to uh, restore uh, credibility, not through language, but through action, and to earn the trust that I think is going to be so important for these relationships to become healthy in the future. Last question that's come in, uh, and many, many people have asked it, uh, what are your plans uh, in the short to, to medium term? You're an important voice on the, on the national stage. Uh, you've earned it. I hope you, you, you keep at it. But how do you see yourself continuing to contribute uh, in, the, in the years ahead? Well, uh, uh, I know what I'm doing through November. So uh, first and foremost, I'm doing everything in my power to uh, help Joe Biden get elected president. And uh, not just because of what I believe we're up against in terms of the current presidency, but also because uh, I believe that the kind of leadership he exudes, in particular the compassion that he exudes, is exactly what our country needs. Uh, with Win the Era, I'm working to uh, make sure I'm helping to elect uh, candidates up and down the ticket, too. This is a moment that's actually reminding us just how much excuse me, offices besides president matter, right? Whether we're talking about racial justice or whether we're talking about pandemic resilience, mayors, prosecutors, district attorneys, uh, these offices matter enormously too. And so uh, I'm working with candidates from the county supervisor level all the way to, uh, to Senate and gubernatorial because I think uh, at this moment, unfortunately, just as we're seeing how important these other offices are, there's less attention, less oxygen than ever for those races because uh, we can barely keep track of the presidential politics with everything else going on. Uh, and uh, I'm doing what I can to, to help with pandemic resilience efforts, especially connecting them to the community of mayors. So that's more than enough to keep me busy for the next uh, few months. And I'm, I'm struck by how uh, busy I think we've all uh, made ourselves without necessarily leaving the four walls. Past that, it's hard to say, but I, I know that there will be uh, more ways to make myself useful. And, and I think right now is a moment to, uh, uh, to uh, direct our energies less toward the, uh, the, the, um, the role we, we, we think we ought to have and more toward the difference we think we can make. Absolutely. Well, and one, I very much hope that once we can all travel again, you're going to get out on the road, both here in the U.S., but also around the world. One last, well, very last question, which is, what are you reading right now uh, to get through this moment or to help understand this moment, uh, or maybe not even reading. What are you watching? What are you listening to? First of all, I said earlier that the, the locus of change largely has to be among white people. There's an excellent book called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. I think she's a sociologist. And it's, it's just, I think it's a really important book for well-intentioned white people to spend time with. I think all of us are looking for historical parallels. So um, I'm going back to FDR, the defining yep. moment. You know, this isn't quite the early 30s, but I think we can learn a lot from, in particular, the fact that, that the New Deal didn't emerge as a campaign promise that was then executed intact once he got elected. It was a response to the reality. And again, this isn't 1968, but it is a good time to read about 1968. Yep. So, there's a, 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 this is a great read, um, uh, Charles Kaiser's book about it. So those are a few of the things that, that I'm, I'm turning to in between, uh, 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 in between Zoom calls. This is uh, <laughs> definitely a moment to try to arm ourselves with some intellectual nourishment. But at the end of the day, I think America, I think the American Center left and left. We're not going to find all of the answers from, from other eras or from other countries. We've got to learn from them and then figure out what a truly American and truly 21st century social democracy is going to look like. 
Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Telsenfreund. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sub-engineer and boss man. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.